1: Hello, from Brandeis University. Welcome to Recall This Book, where the crack anthropologist Elizabeth Ferry and I, oh no, that sounds like you study crack, but the star anthropologist Elizabeth Ferry and I, I'm John Plotz, assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Today, we tackle the always contemporary question of fantasy, its appeal to children and adults, its power to make up other worlds, and what that power has to do with our imaginative capacity to make our own world anew. So very tiny topic, but luckily to take it on, we have the giant brain of Edinburgh professor Anna Vinenskaya. So welcome, Anna. It is great to have you.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So many things can be credited to Anna's giant brain, including in recent years an amazing archive called Scotland-Russia Cultural Encounter since 1900, um, which I'm sorry we will not probably talk about today, though I think it's fascinating. But specifically, we asked Anna here to walk around fantasy with us, because she's the author both of William Morris and the Idea of Community, Romance, History and Propaganda, 1880 to 1914, that was published in 2010, and Fantasies of Time and Death, Dunsany, Edison, Tolkien, which was published in 2020. So Anna, one thing I really, really like about your work is the way it traces the lineage that includes famous names like our shared hero, socialist William Morris, and of course, Tolkien, but is also mindful of lesser lights like uh, Mervyn Peake, Lord Dunsany, Edith Nesbeth, Stella Benson, maybe, and Hope Merlees, Arthur Mackin, and a host of others. Um, And I hope that we could sort of extend that genealogy forward to heroes of our own childhood, like, say, Susan Cooper and Edward Eager. But all of that points, I think, to an RTB special, which means this is not so much an author interview as it is a three way conversation about fantasy, which grows from um, your published work, but is not reliant on that exclusively. But so having said that, Anna, can I maybe ask you just to kick us off by telling you by telling us about your most recent book, Fantasies of Time and Death, and we'll, we'll sort of go onward from there.
2: Sure. Um, well, I'll begin actually by giving a personal story. Um, I was a Tolkien fan as a child, and uh, well, actually, I have to say I'm still one today.
1: Good, um, good. Me and
2: too. <laughs> what it, what attracted me to his work as a child uh, was not the adventure, the fun, um, the excitement that so many people tend to find in it, but the feeling of melancholy, loss, uh, and sometimes even despair, um, and these feelings uh, i began as everyone does with the hobbit and the lord of the rings and then progressed on to the rest of his legendarium and um one of the reasons why I was attracted to this aspect of his work was rooted in my own life journey, as it were, as somebody who emigrated at a young age. And I found when reading about Tolkien's elves that their longing for a lost home, their sense of displacement and exile was something I could um, identify with. So here's a wonderful example of a work of fantasy that has a direct Uh, bearing on real-life experiences um, of of so many human beings in our world today, but also, of course, throughout history. And connected with... This uh, overwhelming sense of of, uh, melancholy and nostalgia was a meditation on the passage of time, of course, the things that time takes us away from in our own lives and in history more generally, the the things we lose as a culture um, as time passes. And of course, for Tolkien, the question of death, as he himself said, was absolutely central. And I latched on to this even as a child before I began to uh, consider it analytically, uh, as it were, later in
1: life. Can I jump in on that? The point about death is so fascinating, especially as a child reader, because I completely understand what you're talking about with that feel of nostalgia and loss. But and maybe this is where you were going. It brings up the issue of the immortality of the elves. Um, Mm -hmm. So I wondered. Yeah, I wondered your thoughts about nostalgia. Among the so, immortals, yeah.
2: The elves' nostalgia, yeah. or the nostalgia of the immortals, as you say, is is, yeah. root, is rooted precisely in the fact that they have to keep living after they have lo- lost that which they have loved. Um, and this is something that you get in The Lord of the Rings, of course, but also uh, across Tolkien's legendarium. And um, it's it precisely, ironically, because their lives are so long, uh, endless as far as the duration of, of this this physical world is, is concerned that the the burdens they have to bear are so much more uh, profound and more poignant in the context of the uh, imagined world than the, the burdens of mortal beings like human beings, because mortals, uh, they, they have to fear death, which comes quickly to them, but they don't have to deal uh, with the accumulating losses that the elves accrued uh, over their uh, lifetime, their endless mm-hmm. lifetimes.
1: I wanted to say that I love that we dived right into Tolkien, (laughs) but I I think it's um, no, but it's just fascinating to think about that particularity of Tolkien's struggle with um, like nostalgia, as you put it, Anna, but also sort of the immortal, perfect world versus the broken, ruined world that we actually live in. Um, I mean, you're making me think, I think, in, you know, you guys probably know I'm obsessed with Ursula Le Guin and the Mm -hmm. scale, the time scale in Le Guin, the dragons live on that other timescale and then there's a kind of interface between the dragon and the human and just to scale outward maximally can I ask Anna have you thought about the analogy to very very old um, epic forms that we might or might not call fantasy like the Iliad and the Odyssey where Mm -hmm. the gods are kind of coterminous with the humans they somewhat envy the humans for being mortal but they Mm -hmm. they kind of struggle with the burden that they're immortal and therefore their actions are kind of light whereas humans are mortal and their actions are heavy i guess
2: yeah i mean there if if you look at uh, various pa- pagan pantheons quote unquote um it, yeah. it is interesting to observe this kind of thing obviously um uh, to to say just one more thing about Tolkien, uh, sure. in his in his uh, instance, it's the Norse Norse uh, pantheon um, that's most relevant and in, as an inspiration and so on. Although it was by no means limited to that, um, and the idea of the doom of the gods that uh, the the gods ultimately will also have to uh, will also be defeated in the end um, is is something that uh, um, you you can see uh, entering into his own, um, sub-creation. Um, and to maybe bring this back to the subject of my book as well, Tolkien was by no means the only early fantasist, and I called him early because, of course, much of what he was writing, um, pre- we think of The Lord of the Rings as a mid-20th century work, but in actual fact, it's really more early 20th century. Um, and um, at that time, there were others like uh, Lord Dunsany, like E. R. Edison, who are the other two um, authors that I consider in my in my monograph, who were uh, exploring this idea of what the gods' relationship is to human existence, to existence in general. Um, what uh, they they were producing these thought experiments, what it must be like as an immortal being who's not just immortal like an elf living in this physical world and bound by its constraints, but actually is you know, transcends the world, can create the world, can destroy the world and so on. Um, what it must be like for a being like that, uh, that has Uh, on the one hand, uh, immense powers, but on the other hand, uh, is also uh, subject to um, constraints of a different kind um, on their nature Um, and what the relationship is between these uh, sort of divine beings and um, the creatures they create, whether those be mortal or immortal. So these kinds of questions were ones that various fantasy authors were um, engaging with. in the early 20th century and obviously since then as well so any author who creates a simulacrum of reality is subcreating um but um in the case of a fantasist they've introduced aspects into that subcreated secondary world that are not present in the primary world where we actually live um mm-hmm. and this is what makes things interesting in in mm-hmm. the fantasy is, like is magic how you,
0: or yeah animals exactly. that
2: talk or yes, yeah, like any that. kind yeah. of supernatural element essentially mm-hmm. now just one note on that prefix sub in sub-creation um the reason tolkien thought of it as sub-creation is of course because he was a, a christian believer and he thought the ultimate creator is god and therefore we human beings uh, who are made in god's image um also create like uh our creator so we we are as it were mini gods if you will um uh, who make in in the Im- because we're made in the image of, of the maker um and uh, ultimately again as a as a catholic he thought that our subcreations will be given life by god will be turned into re- real creation into a part of reality um, at some point after he, you know, humankind is redeemed. So that's his particular kind of Christian take on it. It's not original to him. If you read uh, the essays of George MacDonald, who was a Victorian fantasist, um, writing sort of in the second half of the 19th century, uh, and his essays on the imagination, he pretty much says the same thing. Uh, so, and there are others as well. So the, the and uh, MacDonald was a Congregationalist minister um, who, uh, who who, whose ideas were deeply rooted in his Christian belief as well. So there's this tradition within um, fantasy writing, uh, which theorizes the purpose of the fantasy writer as a kind of almost instrument, well, not an instrument, that that, that sounds too kind of grand, but um, not as an instrument of God, but as somebody who effectively on a human scale does what God does. Now, obviously, if you're not if you do not subscribe to that particular system of faith, then um, this won't work for you as, a, as an explanation of what uh, fantasy writers do. But certain aspects of it can certainly be taken and can be made useful, whatever one's particular background is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the idea that any writer creates a world when they, right. that I think no one would argue with that. that. That's a fairly self-explanatory.
0: I was thinking that the, very term
2: world building and when
0: people talk and they often talk about it in the context of worlds that don't follow the same rules as yeah as our everyday worlds that already is implied maybe not a not a divine creator but but some sort of process of of creation that that looks a lot like that right
1: yeah but it's completely fascinating to know i had missed this and i guess it's in non fairy stories that that Tolkien believed that after human existence that those yeah. worlds would actually somehow be realized that's, that was the, that's amazing the
2: hope as he yeah. uh, it's it's in the epilogue to the scn fairy stories that people don't yeah. tend to focus on um yeah. but that's pretty much what he says there um uh and i think mo- most critics don't go there because it's yeah. just a bit you know it's a it's a, a bit too far for well, know, but the, it's,
1: kind of, <laughs> i mean it's interesting we don't we don't really need to talk about the kind of tension between lewis and tolkien but that's mm. an interesting like i always assumed that one of the things that tolkien didn't like about lewis was his insistence on that kind of um Eschatological realization at the end of the Narnia Mm -hmm. books, where you get the kind of Mm. world beyond, you know, worlds beyond worlds that are recognized, realized after death. Um, But but,
2: in in actual fact, I mean, I don't think because they were both talking about these things in these very same years Mm when when uh, Tolkien's composing it, so composing the essay. So it's not surprising, I think. Can I ask a a not very well informed question
0: about Lewis and Tolkien? my my reading of lewis was always and i think i may have even learned the word allegory in the context of reading lewis and i know that that's not totally technically accurate but there is more of an allegorical feeling i yeah, think when you read absolutely. it that you know this is an allegory of sort of christian christianity whereas i would never say that tolkien is an allegory no,
2: that's absolutely right yeah yeah no. okay.
1: Yeah. And Tolkien says that himself explicitly, like in one of those prefaces, later yeah. prefaces to Lord of the Rings, he makes this great distinction between allegory and applicability, basically. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: yeah. 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 And yeah. he disliked, as is well known, Lewis's penchant for allegory. Um, that said, Tolkien himself did write allegories. He has uh, a couple of short stories, *Leaf by Nigel and Smith of Wooden Major, that mm. arguably, but I think no, no one would seriously d- disagree that they are allegories. So he practiced in that form too, but it was not his favorite, um, by any means. Yeah. Um, and this is, but this raises a, a much, uh, an interesting, bigger question about the degree to which fantasy in general, um, is susceptible to, uh, well, not just allegorical interpretations, but to the impulse towards allegory, uh, do fantasy writers? because if we go beyond somebody like C.S. Lewis, everyone knows about, uh, the you know, Narnia's an allegory. Um, how much allegory, quote unquote, can be found in um, other types of uh, fantasies. And if if I may bring in um, one of the authors that uh, wrote my book about E.R. Edison, who is not well known, um, he's very uh, difficult to read. Uh, that may be one reason why very few people read him, mm-hmm. but I think very rewarding once you, you um get a hold of him also very ideologically problematic and that's something maybe if we talk about Morris later on we can talk I, about it. Ide- I think that'd ideology. be great to talk about
1: actually yeah yeah
2: but just to say that uh, Edison was very interested uh, in this question of allegory as well. He hated it. Uh, he He built a whole philosophical system on the basis of this the significance of particularity uh, and uh, sort of the irreducibility of uh, of things. Um, and uh, so he here was another fantasy writer who was re- repudiating allegory as a, as a mode, um very, very consciously um, and explicitly.
1: Maybe we could connect that to the ideological uptake mm. question that you mentioned, and I, I guess the way I was thinking about this, but Anna, you should t- take the question any way you want, but I was thinking uh, that there are tendencies in, in you know, even in what you've been saying, but if we think about how somebody like Tolkien works to sub-create, there's tendencies to imagine that as um affirming a kind of um, possibility of a stable world order, which you could think of as conservative by nature. I mean, whether it's redemptively Christian or just sort of a, um, you know, a a, a kind of reinforcing the stable facticity of like a story frame that holds. And then there's another way in which because subcreation or secondary world making is reimagining, it would be um, consistent, you know, with the sort of claims that Ursula Le Guin makes, you know, that there's a manifesto for reimagining the world built into fantasy like that is that fantasy Mm -hmm. there's there's one reading of fantasy that says people are escapists like frederick jameson says fantasy is escapism Mm -hmm. it's just Mm -hmm. idle wish fulfillment and that would make it look more ideologically either neutral or conservative and then there's another vision that says well no it's actually showing you a way out um ergo it's emancipatory it's progressive it's anarchist however you Mm -hmm. want to talk about it which yeah which which angle you know which angles make sense to you and why.
2: Uh, well, all of them uh, together, as it were, because it's uh, we 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 haven't touched on the thorny issue of defining what fantasy actually is, and I don't right. suggest we we go yeah. that way because mm-hmm. that's a that's a rabbit hole. But uh, because so many different things have been called fantasy, I think it's it is actually impossible to generalize uh, the certain works that we call fantasy fit into the, the, the former, kind of, and certain fit into the latter. Um, there's, um, I, I know, for instance, uh, a recent book by James Gifford on um, fantasy and the, the radical fantastic mm-hmm. on modernism, yeah. anarchism, and, and fantasy. Yeah. He uh, has chapters devoted to Dunsany and, and Merleys and, and so on, um, and, and Morris, um, and, as well as obviously later fantasists. Yeah. But there have been readings of the same authors that have taken both tax- as it were. So yeah. it's possible to read in the same work from the opposite points of view as as on the one hand transformative but if looked at from a different angle uh
1: mm-hmm.
2: which you could call conservative even Tolkien who is nobody would argue uh i think that Uh, he's particularly radical, um, ideologically speaking. But if you actually look at his definition of escapism in On Fairy Stories uh, as uh, something that, um, that makes us want to revolt against the abuses of the status quo, and he talks specifically about um, factories producing bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, in that essay, he gives that as a concrete concrete example. Obviously, he also talks about um, uh, the uh, the internal combustion engine and mm-hmm. uh, sort of you know um, industry and and all the rest of it, which is his better known um, uh, conservative side, if you will. Um, but yep. uh, but he frames fa- fantastic escapism as a statement against. Uh, war in the essay and fairy stories, so as a kind of uh, call to um, uh, reimagine the world in a radical way that that um, condemns the uh, sort of the abuses of human society, the destruction of human life, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. on. Um, so that you could you could easily read that as quote unquote radical if you wished to do so. So I think it's it's all it's all about how we define these terms i think ultimately. Uh, but um if uh, if we step back into, Uh, a more narrow definition uh, where we're literally looking at the political views of a given fantasy author, then things are are relatively simple. And we can take someone like William Morris, who was a a Victorian uh, writer of fantasy, but also one of the founders of uh, British socialism. And in in, um, sort of in his later years, which is when most of his uh, fantasy romances were written, uh, he was uh, active uh, as uh, he was an active Marxist. Uh, mm-hmm. So he in, infused his fantasy with ideas uh, about, for instance, communitarian ways of living, uh, about the, uh, the uh, importance of solidarity, all of those kinds of things, uh, uh, kind of values. Um, it, the, the, they're there to be seen, but but the romances aren't allegories, so we don't have a kind of uh, crude... Mm-hmm. Um, embodiment of his political Mm -hmm. ideas in those stories. They work on their own terms. Uh, They they exist completely uh, outside of any ideological framework, uh, should you wish to read them that way. But equally, if you wish to place them back in the the political context of the time, they make sense in relation to Morris's own um, uh, political
1: beliefs. Which may explain why News from Nowhere and The Dream of John Ball, say, are more sort of widely cited works than those works. Yes, exactly. because They lend themselves to more direct.
2: Exactly. Because he's Mm -hmm. explicit there, because News from Nowhere is... Is a straightforward socialist utopia, and you know, yeah. the, the, it's all you know, the label's right there. I mean, aside from fantasy, one of my main research areas is the uh, sort of the history of the British socialist movement. And in the 19th century, um, uh, the socialists, and I'm referring here not just to writers but to, to sort of uh, the activists, political activists, and so on, um, they use the, the they use the past very very actively. Um, in order to formulate their critique of the present. So they were able to um, uh, uh, to uh, critique cap- the capitalist um, uh, uh, status quo by invoking s- certain models, sometimes inventing uh, th- the past in a way that suited their particular um, agenda, uh, in order to show that, look, things can be different because in the past they weren't like this they can be different again and the past might actually give us some examples right. of how to structure our societies that we could use to make the future Absolutely. A, a better and, one and that was so, sort of what i meant by the yeah. morris
0: analogy so i was just exactly, saying in yeah. terms of this that's the other side of my argument about why transformant transformation and preservation don't seem to align in a neat way, according to a political spectrum, because there, as you put it beautifully, the the past and the future is what you make of it, right? <laughs> yes. so, yeah,
1: yeah. So we have a conversation with Gifford in the vault that we're going to publish one of these days about Great. radicalism and Le Guin, But mm-hmm. also, um, we have an upcoming conversation with um, with uh, David Wengrow, who wrote that book, The Dawn of Everything. Do you do you know this book? Uh, it's, Not, he wrote it with Graeber. He wrote the it guy with David Graeber. Passed away, oh, David Graeber. Yeah.
2: Oh, yes, of course yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, yeah, I but, was thinking of Graeber as the main author.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. Of course. Yeah. So, so Wengro is the archaeologist who, who worked with Graeber. And one of the things I yeah. love about that book is that it, it basically just shows the insane variety of, like, economic and political dispensations mm-hmm. under which so called, quote, prehistoric human society has. Endure, you know. There's not one it's teleology. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just, yeah, exactly. Like a multifoliate version of how you articulate, basically, power, knowledge, uh, authority. You know, like all of these different variables that can be combined in many different ways. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I like, I like, I, I totally take that fantasy can be regressively backward looking, but I like the notion that it is. it looks outward and by looking outward, it has the potential to just shake things up, which might be a reversion to some older imagined right. yeah. better order. But, yeah. but Anna, what you're saying, I completely agree with, which is that like the imaginary past can be a different future too.
0: Yeah, For sure. Yes, yes.
1: So we haven't really talked about the children's fantasy side or the children versus adult. I mean, we've been yeah. assuming a sort of continuous and Anna, you started us off with that beautiful anecdote about your own, you know, like feeling that sense of loss and nostalgia that it sounds like pervades even your adult account of Tolkien as well. But mm-hmm. do we want to think a little bit about the... Um, the notion of these as books for children versus what it means to be an adult. Like, as an adult reader of fantasy, yeah. are you an outside reader always, or sort of a secondary reader? Uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. So I uh, wouldn't class uh, ch- uh, well Tolkien's writing, except for the, the obviously children-oriented Hobbit and several of his shorter stories uh, he is not a writer for children uh, children although he is accessible to children and i think that's what wrongfoots some people that when they come across a work uh, that is not inaccessible um and obviously there are all the mar- marketing considerations and uh, um Uh, sort of critical uh, disparagement that uh, greeted uh, the the publication of the book and that has persisted in certain quarters since. So even leaving all of that aside, I think we we shouldn't class something as a quote unquote children's book in that negative sense, um, if it can be read by children, because it can also be read by adults just as well. And as Tolkien himself said in the essay on fairy stories, and I apologize for for constantly coming back to that, um, adults will get more out of it. Um, Children can read it and enjoy it, but adults will get so much more. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a hallmark of all children's fantasy that is actually intentionally targeted at children as well. Uh, That uh, if it's well-written, adults will be able to glean more from it than children could possibly do. Um, And uh, one interesting, and that works uh, sort of, uh, that's both for the good and for the bad. Because if we take someone like Edith Nesbitt, who is a well-known children's uh, fantasy writer from the early 20, sort of late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and incidentally, also, she was a, a socialist member of the Fabian Society. So um, on, on the kind of radical end, if you will, politically. Um, th- those books are, uh, they're urban f- Comic fantasies, for the most part, um, they're very uh, enjoyable reads. But my, my, uh, my own daughter sort of really loves them, um, but then when I look at them as an adult reader with a kind of contextual knowledge and so on, I actually find a lot of dist- ideologically, politically, if you will, disturbing elements in them. Um, in relation, sort of, well, in relation to depictions of class, to, you know, race, yes. uh, <laughs> even, even to a certain Empire. extent, gender, <laughs> yeah. and so. On. On, which a child would simply not pick up on because they lack the, the reference points of uh, the, the background.
0: I have a question. I mean, something like E. e- Nisbet, it makes sense that it's written for children because it has children protagonists, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, although I certainly in many ways more accessible, The Hobbit, I think it's I like it much better than the Lord of the Rings uh, than the. Oh, oh, uh, those are fighting
1: words, dude. I know, but
0: um, (laughs) as you can see, and I'm willing to fight if I need to, but, um, but uh, what makes it uh, obviously
2: for children in your sense? Right. I think actually I was thinking in terms of, uh, origins because it, mm. it began as a story for one of one of his own children um mm. and was famously the 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 publisher's reader for it was famously the publisher's son, 11-year-old I think son at the time so uh, yeah. so in that sense in, tr- in terms of its gestation um and publication uh, it was yeah. always framed that way it was obviously published as a children's book but if you but you're right uh in that if you look at it simply uh, as a text in its own right uh w- Actually, that's true. I mean, what aspects of it class would make us classified as a children's book? I'm not so sure in that instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. that's actually I mean, it's question. definitely
0: less dark than the rest of the, you know, than the ring cycle anyways.
1: I, I don't know. I'm going to say, but, I, I love The Hobbit. I was read it as a child. I read it to my children with great pleasure. I have read it as an adult with pleasure. But I think the there and back again structure is pretty classic children's story. I mean, mm-hmm, it has a, right. it has a quest with, you know, various people who loom into view as, you know, obstacles or episodes for the unfolding experience of a single, you know, small, somewhat childlike figure, I think. I mean, he might be yeah. old, but he is, you know, ingenuous.
2: Yeah, um, sure.
1: And Lord yeah. of the Rings is different from that. Like Lord of the Rings just, it, it demands a complexity of world rendition. It is, it's not just the unfolding of a line it's like looking laterally and seeing the whole map. Um, Right. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, but uh, this also raises the question of uh, different target audiences and whether there's such a thing, for instance, as young adult fiction, Mm -hmm. because that's a marketing category which, uh, is has limited usefulness i think as a critical category um but nevertheless, Except that nevertheless a wizard
1: of mercy was commissioned to be a young adult book
2: that's yeah. in fact exactly yeah. what i was yeah. yeah. bringing up right now is the wizard of mercy because yeah. in that instance it's it's precisely uh it the label sort of it's made to to the label and the protagonist is uh well if yeah. the protagonists rather because they're it's not. Uh, the spare oh, the and ones, um, yeah. Aaron and so on. Uh, the, the the boy protagonists they're uh they're sort of on the cusp of manhood, so yeah. they're adolescents. Um, yeah, and the story is about uh their uh, you know crossing over that line into adulthood, so their initiation, mm-hmm. if you will. And there's it's a very like interest- a school story at the beginning, yeah, right? uh, about you know, with like- rope absolutely. Yes, yeah, yeah, so they're yeah. all those hallmarks. Um, so, so that that's an interesting. But then, of course, it goes beyond that. And obviously, when when Léguin you know continued the series into Tehanu kind of and and onwards, uh, yeah. It of course at that point I, I think it sheds its young adult associations almost completely. And if you know, especially you know, if you think about the Tehanu to such an extent about the life of the middle aged. Um, yeah. Yeah. That uh, you, you sort of, uh, you, you, I think th- those classifications begin to creak and fall apart, basically, the uh, the more it develops. Um, so I think, and that's a, a hallmark for me of, you know, um, I mean, that's what good fiction should do. Uh, mm-hmm. It shouldn't remain uh, imprisoned by any kind of categories that might be imposed upon it. Gen- generic categories you mentioned
1: yeah. yeah 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 I mean that raises a, a whole other angle which we probably don't have a ton of time left to explore but it is one of the things now that I think back to Tolkien's on fairy stories he's very um definite that the genre is a textual one by nature yes. or the mode is textual by nature and it, that's a funny claim I mean it's a very apropos claim at the era that he made it. but if you think about how fantasy has um, permeated our different media forms nowadays um mm-hmm. and i don't know if you guys have seen the trailer for the new uh lord of the rings which i suppose is like the silver series, williams right? forthcoming yeah mm-hmm. um but you know obviously the incredible success of the lord of the ring movies but other you know versions as well you know we could ask that question of whether fantasy looks fundamentally different in a textual form from a i don't know visual you know or what what's the word for all of those different media modes, you know, popular media, I guess, yeah. Yeah. film, TV, etc.
2: Yeah, I think nowadays, one cannot talk about fantasy uh, as an exclusively textual form, but those days are long gone. Um, yeah. And uh, if, if you look at the conferences, book, uh, sort of essay collections, uh, everything, it's multimodal. And uh, there are probably more people working um, on fantasy in those other modes mm-hmm. than they are than there are working on textual fantasy nowadays mm, uh, yeah. that's just a guess but uh, mm-hmm. this impression I get um, but I think they do differ uh, so the films fantasy films uh, would come the closest I think to textual fantasy because there is a single well to a certain extent the single author's guiding vision determining uh, the, the whole product um the whole mm. sort of final output although obviously unlike a book there are lots of other people involved in the mm-hmm. creation of 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 uh mm-hmm. cinematic fantasy but usually there's still a, a a director uh who stamps their vision on um um on the world but once you get into gaming for instance then even mm-hmm. that goes by the wayside and um there's so much agency is given to the player for instance in navigating their way around the world Mm -hmm. and choosing uh sort of learning about it um doing different things in it um and the worlds are constantly being uh expanded um if they're successful um uh game worlds for instance then um they're potentially endless yeah. in the way that even something like the lifelong project of a Tolkien uh, or some other authors who've done, that, done that, that, kind of thing, they can't possibly compete because there's still just one person at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one person is mm-hmm. going to die. But it, with the gaming universe, you could potentially have hundreds thousands of people working on it for as long as, you know, they're making money off of it, essentially. Yeah. Um, so, so that prolific kind of, um, It's just a a complete step change, I think, in how fantasy works once you get into that.
1: Yeah, though I will say your use earlier of the word legendarium, which is the word that people use to describe the Tolkien corpus and its potentially extensible edges, of course, brings back older concepts, not just the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the Star Mm -hmm. Trek Cinematic Universe, but also the Arthurian Legendarium, right? There's a long tradition of available story space, which might be multiply authored. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
2: that's absolutely true. And um, it's interesting in that regard that uh, because we haven't talked at all about the kinds of fantasy that take place in these pre-existing uh l- l- legendaria. Uh yeah. so Arthurian fantasy, of course, yeah. is a particular subgenre, a very the fruitful one. And yeah. it is simply the latest incarnation of something that goes back literally thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And we could view um if, if any fantasy that that uses existing pantheons, for instance, yeah. uh, either Greek pantheon or whatever, in a sense also is doing precisely that. So you're right. right. In that sense, fantasy, textual fantasy has always or, already been there, um, yeah. you know. As mm-hmm. and the,
1: th- the Thousand and One Nights is another legendarium, yeah. which borrows itself borrows right. from Indian stories and and mm-hmm. Persian stories and you know changes its name and its shape and yes, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: You know. mm-hmm. So that's true.
1: Yeah. So this is probably a great moment to turn, uh, Anna, so the final step for home here is a category we call recallable books. So where we ask, you know, another book that you would recommend to listeners here that might relate to this conversation. So maybe there's something you want to sort of pull off the shelf is that did you did you have a book in mind or.
2: Uh, so um, when you asked me to think about that. Uh... I, I went through a number of contenders uh, yes. and actually I'll settle on something. Um, uh, it's a collection of short stories published, I think, or collected at any rate in 1977, I believe, mm. called the Kingdoms of Elfin by Sylvia Townsend Warner. Oh my God. Um, I love
1: that book. I love right. that book. Yeah. So yeah. Uh,
2: she's a, she's a British writer who's better known as the author of Lolly Willow's 1920s novel um, yeah. about a, a woman who becomes a witch essentially. But yeah. uh at the very end of her life she wrote a series of stories many of which were published in the New Yorker I think um, uh, set in different incredibly vividly realized quote unquote elfin kingdoms which are modeled on actual mostly European but also uh, sort of Ottoman and uh, Near Eastern cultures um, uh, with the usual kind of distinction between elves or fairies uh, and mortals but the way she uh, takes on those what we think of as familiar tropes is just so different from anything that uh, anyone would expect. Uh, I think mm. it's a, it's a kind of sweet, generous, kind of unique creation, and um, I, it's disturbing. So uh, it's not a, a cuddly, fuzzy read by any means, um, but it is. It'll make you uh, question your understanding of fantasy. I think uh, so. I would recommend that.
1: Oh, I, yeah, that's so great! Thank you so much. I totally uh, agree. I mean, maybe James Hogg would be the closest comparison, but you know, one hundred and seventy yeah. years after some of those strange um, fairy tales, but and it, it Hogg
2: is, it, is actually mentioned, I believe, in in um, one or yeah, a couple I think of those in the final stories. story, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah exactly. Cool, um, Elizabeth, you're going to pass this week, right? Or are you?
0: Um, you know? Well. I did occur, one did occur to me, uh, which maybe I'll bring up and yeah. um, which is the Lloyd Alexander um, mm. Taran series. Um, I've forgotten the name of the series itself, but
1: Chronicles right. of Prydain, I think.
0: Chronicles of Prydain, yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, that begins with the, the book of three. Um, yeah. And I was thinking of it partly in relation to this idea of the legendarium, right? Because it's drawing on, on Welsh, uh, sort of a Welsh yeah. world and also Welsh mythology um but you know that's one that i in some ways i i think it's a lot i'm not sure it's as good as the earth sea cycle but it's definitely um, not but <laughs> no. it is <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I i do love it, it but,
1: though i, I adore I, it also and
0: too. i love it's you know the sort of way it has this kind of episodic character um character yeah. and there's the the one of them which is called Taran wanderer um yeah which is a kind of very different in tone from the others. Uh, and and uh, where, where the protagonist goes and he learns to first to weave and then to throw pots and then to forge a sword. And it has this very kind of detailed sort of production aspect. It's almost a little bit like, um, uh, Little House the on Laura, the yeah, the Laura Ingalls Wilder, where there's like yeah. these descriptions, really t- kind yeah. of technical descriptions. How to, smoke,
1: how to smoke a pig, yeah.
0: Exactly, and yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just uh, I I love that change of pace that it that it yeah. sort of allows.
1: Yeah, I just wrote a footnote about it, in which I sort of compared the fact that uh, Taryn is the assistant pig keeper to the fact that um, that Ged begins as a goat keeper, oh, and I talked about yeah, this kind I, of magic and manure quality where it's like very earthy and very enchanted both. And that's, I think that's something super endearing about those books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're and that tradition of going back to the Welsh stuff, because uh, you know, that's, not, she's, he's not the uh, only person to yeah. kind of mm-hmm. reinvest the Mabinogi in. um Yeah. Oh, so very quickly, I'll say, I, I picked a book that often gets classified as science fiction, which is uh, N.K. Jemisin's the fifth season Um, You'll see it in both, but I think, you know, she's clearly in conversation with Le Guin and I really like Jemison both because, you know, she's got this wonderful donate of a world where people can make or stop earthquakes with their minds. So that's sort of the magical power, but then she has a very sharp sense of how much what she's doing is not, not allegorical to our own world, but applicable in terms of the way that power works and, um, you know, it belongs to that tradition of kind of um, geopolitical fantasy, I guess, where you learn a lot about who's in power and what, you know, what, what you can do Right, power and
0: othering. Powering and
1: othering, for sure, Yeah. 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 Like it turns out that basically people who can control earthquakes are the most, are the strongest, people in the world and that makes them the most abject because they need to be controlled by those who have real power, need to control the sort of earthquake minds. So yeah, it's it's a very resonant um, book and then a, a series, but especially the first book I love. Okay, so I'm just going to add really quickly that for those of you who enjoyed these conversations, I think you'll want to tune in two weeks um, from now where we're going to rebroadcast a conversation that we had uh, years ago now with Madeline Miller, the author of Circe. And I also think you might like episode 46 when we spoke with children's lit expert Leah Price. And those are searchable, uh, like all our archives, through our website or through the New Books Network. So, Anna, this has been a huge pleasure. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Recall this book was founded by Elizabeth Ferry and me, John Plotz. It's sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanities Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen. Website design and social media by Miranda Puri of the English Department. We're eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts. If you liked what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening.